0: We're going to continue to look at James. This series is called Dazzling Christianity. How many of you want to live a dazzling Christian life? Anyone? Uh, This is my third session uh, out of the book of James, and I really trust that um, you're being encouraged. I certainly am being challenged and encouraged as I prepare myself, and I I really encourage you this morning to open your hearts to the Lord, to continue to keep your hearts soft and open. And uh, let God transform you from the inside out, eh? Uh, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your words. I want to thank you for what you're doing. And I just pray that you'd help me this morning to communicate clearly and effectively. I thank you for what you've given me to share. And uh, I bless you, Lord, that your word transforms us. Your word washes us. Your word is amazing. More and more, it makes us like Jesus. And we just want to say thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. So can you um, please go to the first chapter, and we're going to go to verse 5 this morning, which simply says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so quite simply, the, me, the title of my message this morning is Wisdom from Heaven. Wisdom from Heaven. How many of you would like some wisdom from heaven in your life? <laughs> I would. And there's a beautiful, beautiful promise to all of us who are believers, is that we can have wisdom from heaven. And we're going to look at that this morning. And last week we had a look at patience. And I uh, called my message last week, Patience, the Pathway to Maturity. And that uh, God does something in us so that patience can complete its perfect work that god has a perfect work of patience in our lives that he wants to complete and bring to fulfillment and i encourage you, if you weren't here last week to get online and go and have a look at that and i said one of the things i said was that he makes everything beautiful in its time in ecclesiastes 3:11 in his time when we don't get in the way when we don't try to bring to an end prematurely what god is doing in our lives Through difficult circumstances, he makes all things beautiful in his time. But when we get in the way, when we interfere with the process of God, the beauty of what God could have brought in our lives through that trial, we don't experience the fullness of that. So I want to encourage you, you, if you have difficult circumstances in your life, at work, maybe there's a particular person at work, is a real challenge to you. Well, let God have his perfect work in you. Let patience complete it's perfect work in you. All right? So you can experience the fullness of the blessing that God has for you. And I said also that every trial, every difficult circumstance in our life comes to us through the sovereign hand of God, through the throne of grace. It's filtered to us through the throne of grace. And it always comes to us in the hand of God. The hand of God holding you, whatever situation you're going through. What a comfort to all of us. Right? And I want to say. For me, as I'm increasingly enjoying studying this book, I believe the book of James is a call from God to every single Christian who is worldly and backslidden. It's a call from God, and he's drawing us closer to him. He's wooing us back to himself. Now, James, as I said in the first session, was written to scattered Jews who, through persecution, had been scattered all over the Mediterranean basin, and in that process, they'd become discouraged, they'd become uh, inward-looking, they had, uh, they had started to speak badly of each other, and so James addresses these things in this book, and so it's a call to all of us, every single one of us, to leave worldliness behind us, to leave backsliddenness behind us, and to come back to Jesus in a, in a first love kind of way. All right? There's more than one kind of backslider, all right? There's a, we, could, we could say there's like scandalous backsliders, and that's, that's what, you know, when we look at uh, people's lives, not in a way of judgment, we can see when people are backslidden. The priority of meeting together no longer is a priority for people. That's, a, that's backsliddenness. Uh, sexual behavior that is not honoring of God, that's an obvious backsliddenness. A lack of generosity in the church community is an obvious sign of backsliddenness. These are obvious things. We, we just look at the church and we can observe them and say, okay, God, well, you're addressing a couple of things. But what James is saying also is there's, there's backsliddenness that is not obvious. And he says there's a backsliddenness that's not obvious is when you discriminate in the congregation amongst the rich and the poor. That's showing that you're backslidden. Showing that you're not honoring God primarily, that you honor people, that you prefer rich people because they've got something that they can give you. I read a very challenging quote this morning by RT, uh, this week by RT Kendall, and he said, You want to really test the character of a person? Uh, see what they do with someone who can give nothing back to them in return. How do you treat someone who can actually give you nothing back in return? Show something of character, something of your heart. These are obvious sort of things. So, I said last week that sometimes trials are a means of grace to us, that God is calling us back through these difficult circumstances in our lives. He's calling us back to a primary relationship with Him. He's calling us back to honoring Him. They are a means of grace. And I've quoted this before, but C.S. Lewis famously said, "Didn't he, he said this, that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deafened world. We don't like that. <laughs> pain is... God's megaphone to arouse a deaf, deafened world. And then here, James begins to focus our attention on prayer. There's some wonderful promises in the Bible. Romans 8, 28. I've been quoting it over and over and over. And this is becoming a reality more and more in my life, and my walk with God, that I'm beginning to meditate on this simple verse, I can honestly say, almost daily. God works all things to, together for good, for those that love Him, and are called according to His purpose. I'm saying, God, show me what that means in my life. It's Another wonderful promise in Philippians 4.19, for every Christian, my God will supply your need according to His riches in Christ Jesus in glory. It's interesting that Paul says that to the Philippian church. He also says of the Philippian church, out of your poverty... Weld up in you extreme generosity, and my God will supply your needs according to his, his riches and glory. And here's another wonderful promise, promise to every believer, you and I, every single Christian. This is a promise to all of us. If you lack wisdom, ask God, and he is faithful to give it to all without reproach. Is that not incredible? Let's meditate on these things. So James has talked about trials in the first couple of verses. And he says we need to persevere in trials. And we had a look at detail what that means. And he said the other thing that trials do is they bring a complexity with them. And sometimes when you're in the middle of the trial, you don't quite know what to do. It's confusing. There's so many options. God, what do I do? And so James says, when you're in a trial, and particularly, you know, if you're backslidden, trials become more complicated because you can't hear the voice of God anymore, and then it becomes really complicated. Then you're stuck. You say, now, what do I do? You're not hearing God. You're not in a good place for Him. And so James says, if you're in that place, the best thing you can do is ask God. That's what he's saying? And so he's, he's encouraging us. He's saying, this is how you live a Christian life. We all face questions, don't we? Like... Um, where should I work? Where should I live? Is it appropriate for me to do that as a Christian? Is it not? What about sport on a Sunday? How do I respond to that? I want my child to do well, but how do I respond to that? These are real questions that people are facing all the time. Well, if you don't know the answer to those questions, the Bible says ask God. The simplicity and a beauty for all of us in the book of James. And he says, ask God. James is not saying, expect a rule book which will tell you what to do. Do this, don't do that. James is calling us to a life of living by the Spirit. James is calling us to a life of living a life without law. Without anyone saying, do this and do that. He's saying to you and to me, he's asking us in the first five verses of this book, he's asking to establish, you and I, to establish in our lives a deep conviction, an absolute certainty that motivates everything in our lives and in our hearts is that he wants a relationship with us. An intimate, personal relationship with you and I where we walk by the Spirit and it's mediated through prayer. That's why he says, Ask God. So, on the first session, he was a Jew of, he, he was one of the most conservative um, apostles in, a sense in the sense in, he was a big gun in the Jewish New Testament, in, in, the, in, the, in the church in Jerusalem. He was a Jew, he was conservative. He could have said, Read the Torah. He doesn't say that. What does he simply say? Ask God. There's an intimacy that comes that God wants for you and I, every single one of us. There's an intimacy that he wants that comes and is mediated in your life through prayer. Ask God. I'm convinced this is not a book. You know, I said, I said before as well that uh, Luther dismissed this book. said it's a epistle of straw. Why? Because he had a look at chapter 2 verse 14, which talks about faith and works, and he said, this book doesn't understand the grace of God. He dismissed it. He said, it's an epistle of straw, not worth anything. I want to say to you, the more I look at this book, I'm absolutely convinced that it's a book of faith. It's a book of living free of the law, and James and Paul absolutely agree in terms of their theology. And the closer I look, the more I see that what James values more than anything else is undoubting faith. That's what he values more than anything else. In fact, he goes on and he says, we should not doubt when we ask, and a man who's double-minded will receive no wisdom from God. That's, we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. Why don't I say it's a book that's about living without law? Well, go to verse 25 of chapter 1. What does James say there? He says, a man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this Not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The perfect law of liberty. That's what the NRV says, uh, the the ESV says, the the NRV says the perfect law that gives freedom. The next time he mentions the law, go with me to chapter 2, verse 8. And he says this, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture. And what is the royal law that he's talking about? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. You are doing right. You are doing right. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 13, verse 8? And here Paul and James absolutely agree. What does Paul say? He says, Owe nothing to anybody except love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled all the law. What did Jesus say? All the law is summarized in these two little things. Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the highest law. That's what we call to. That's what I said last week. The whole of the Christian life is summarized perfectly in a life of love. That's the goal. Perfect love. Are you with me? God wants to lead you by the Spirit. He wants to lead me by the Spirit. There's a perfect liberty and freedom that He has for us and there's a glorious way of living a Christian life that is without law. Out, and this is what James is saying to us in this first five verses. Uh, RT said it like this. James believes that if we live by the law of liberty, that's the law of freedom, purposefully, we will fulfill the moral law accidentally. And uh, I think Michael stole that from him. Because what did Michael say? Michael said, walk by the Spirit deliberately and you will fulfill the law accidentally. That's the call to us, believers. So what kind of wisdom are we talking about then? If uh, James says we need to ask for wisdom, well, I do want to make a, a little distinction here because he's talking about subjective wisdom. Subjective wisdom. The kind of wisdom is, Lord, what the hang do I do right now in my life? That kind of wisdom, all right? Because objectively, we have all that we need in Christ. Right? That's what the Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 1 Verse 30 says, And because of him in Christ, because of Christ, because you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it it might be written, Let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. We have the fullness of those things in Christ, objectively. That is our position. We are saved. When we, once we are saved, we have wisdom, we have righteousness, we have sanctification, we have redemption. All these things are in Christ. All right? All that Adam lost through sin. Jesus has won back for us. Objectively, we have all that we need, the fullness of all we need in Christ. And so Colossians 2.3 says, We have the fullness of Christ in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. Amen. Everything we need in Jesus, and so why does James then say, "If we have all of that in Christ, why does he say ask for wisdom?" Well, this is what I found fascinating this week. For me, such joy when I saw this. Yeah, the Greek really is important, Maria and George. The Greek is really important because James uses a specific word for wisdom, and it's Sophia, Sophia. And Sophia always referred to an objective wisdom. It always referred to an unusual ability, an unusual kind of knowledge. And originally in Greek writing, that kind of wisdom, that kind of knowledge only belonged to the gods, all right? The gods alone had it, and they were up in Mount Olympus, and humans on earth didn't have that kind of Sophia, that kind of knowledge. That's what the Greek believed. The Greeks believed. And then along comes a philosopher called Socrates, and he brings a kind of another meaning to the word because he invents a new word, philosophia, philos, philo, the love of, Sophia, knowledge. And so he brings a little bit of a distinction. He says, actually, the love of knowledge, the love of this kind of superior wisdom involves debating, thinking, being able to rationalize things. And he makes a distinction between that kind of intellectual process and something which is an absolute knowledge and wisdom about yourself that is a critical kind of knowledge. And it's like it's knowledge about yourself that is outside of yourself, if I can explain it like that. And he says that's the highest form of knowledge is actually knowing yourself and knowing that you don't have all the answers and you don't know everything. That is what he calls Sophia. Are you with me? And now it's interesting because in the book of James, and also in other portions in the Bible, this word Sophia is used. Now, if we go to the, the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament which is called the Septuagint, and we look at, um, for example, Proverbs verse nine, uh, Proverbs nine verse ten. We quote this all the time. It says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom," and it's Sophia. The word they use is Sophia, and that means the beginning. The beginning of truly knowing yourself, who you are, having a critical knowledge and wisdom about yourself, begins with fearing God. Okay? That's what the, the writers in Proverbs are saying. And um, why I want to just spend a little time looking at this is because for Jews growing up in, in uh, the first couple of centuries, they were Jews, they spoke Hebrew, but they, grew up in a, they were growing up in a Greek culture. And much of our culture also is uh, influenced by Greeks and a uh, Greek way of thinking. And so... The Jews to which James was writing and later Paul was writing would have understood that when they used this word Sophia, they were saying a knowledge that is mediated by Sophia in your life is revelation from God. That's what they were saying. It's direct revelation from God. And what James is saying is every Christian can have that kind of wisdom. Amen. Every single one of us can have direct access to wisdom from heaven in our lives by the Spirit. Man, that's an incredible thing. And so the writers in the New Testament, they used a number of words for wisdom. If you go to uh, Acts 17, maybe you want to do that this week, Paul uses the word techna, techna to describe a peculiar kind of wisdom, which is a kind of wisdom that's good with skill, with art and crafts. And he says that's, he uses that word techna, and obviously we get our word technology from that not talking about that kind of technological wisdom there's another word called friend, P-H-R-E-N friend, and Jesus uses that word in Matthew chapter 25 when he's talking about the wise and the foolish virgins, wisdom there, that's intellectual wisdom, that's cleverness these, these wise virgins were clever they were sharp they knew what to do, they had thought through all the options he's not. James doesn't use that kind of word All right? He's using Sophia, this wisdom that comes directly from God. It's got nothing to do with uh, intellectualism. It's got nothing to to do with uh, superior technological understanding. Nothing like that. And he's simply saying to all of us as Christians, we can have that kind of wisdom. All we have to do is ask God. And it's used in other places. Luke 2.40. It's used of Jesus. It says, and he grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, Sophia, and the favor of God was upon him. Speaking of Jesus, it's the same in Luke 2:52. Again of Jesus, he grew in wisdom, Sophia, and stature, in favor with God and with man. Even his miracles, even the powerful things that he did, Mark 6, verse 2, says of Jesus on the sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying where did this man get these things and what is the wisdom the sophia given to him and how are these mighty works done by his hands what's interesting is that the mighty works that he that he does are connected with the wisdom that he has what about the early church acts chapter 6 when they needed some leadership in the church. What does it say? Acts chapter 6, verse 3. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from amongst yourselves seven men of good repute, good reputation, full of the Spirit and full of Sophia, wisdom from God. Not intellectual wisdom, not cleverness, not good with their hands, not technology, men full of the wisdom from heaven. Use those kind of men to lead you? So the point is, Do you lack wisdom? (laughs) Do I lack wisdom? Well, if you do, all that James says we have to do is ask God. If you're going through a difficult trial at the moment, if you are confused, if you don't know what to do, if if, if it just seems too confusing, if you don't know your right hand from your left, James says to you, ask God. (laughs) James says to me, ask God. You might be coming becoming increasingly aware of your lack of wisdom because perhaps you have been forced into a situation where you have to make a decision. Maybe you've got a job opportunity and you have to make a decision now and you don't know what to do and you feel this pressure. Well, God says to you, ask me. <laughs> don't come to the pastor. Good to speak to friends. Good to speak to me. To speak to Mike, to speak to Petri, Ed, anyone in this church who's got some kind of wisdom. But hey, at the first, your first point of entry, in the place of prayer, ask God yourself. Cry out to him until he gives you an answer. You have that right, that privilege as a believer, an unmediated relationship you have with Jesus. By the Spirit, through prayer. Enjoy it. Amen. That's what God's calling us to. What about, uh, you know, maybe you living your life according to the the highest law, the law of freedom that uh, uh, James speaks about here, and even that doesn't seem to shed any light for you, kind of like, well, what do I do now? Is this right? Is this wrong? Even living by the Spirit, I can't hear. Well, G- well, well uh, James says, ask God, <laughs> ask God, ask God, ask God. You know, as, as I was uh, looking and doing a little bit of research, you know, Paul wasn't even concerned that he had to be with the church, for example, in Philippi. He said, in fact, he said, I don't have to even be with you because I know that it's God that works in you. I only ask this of you, he says, Paul. He says, do everything without murmuring and complaining. (laughs) And he says, when you lack wisdom, ask God. It sounds like James to me. It sounds like exactly the same as James. James. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. Do everything without murmuring and complaining. Do everything with joy in your heart, trusting your Father in heaven, who's good and kind and generous, who's always smiling on you. Even the trials in your life are mediated by his sovereign hand through the throne of grace. And when you don't have wisdom, ask him. saw the scripture, 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which was absolutely amazing. Uh, it's not the one, but anyway, this is also a good scripture. <laughs> it says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone amongst you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. True wisdom begins at the cross. So why does James say, ask God? Well, simply this, because when we acknowledge That we need God through prayer. We are acknowledging that we are deficient in some way. That we are not self-sufficient. That we need him. We need him to intervene. We need his wisdom. That's why James goes on to say later in chapter 4, verse 6, what does he say? He says, God resists the proud. You want to know what my definition of pride is? Those who refuse to ask for help. That's a proud man. Someone who refuses to ask God for help, refuses to ask his friends for help, its a proud man. You know what? It's a double whammy if you're proud because God says, I will resist you as well. (laughs) What does it say? He gives grace to those who are humble. What is humility? Humility is saying, God, I need you. Humility is saying to your mates, your friends, your wife, I need you. That's true humility. People that live their lives out asking for help, double whammy, because it says God resists you and people resist you as well. Pride, let's put it to death in our lives. Amen? So why why ask God? Well, because quite simply, He knows everything. (laughs) He knows everything. You don't need a code of ethics. You don't need a book of rules. You ask God. He's got power. He'll show you. He's not deaf. He hears you. He's alive. He's not dead. He's risen. We just celebrated that over Easter. Isaiah says no one can fathom the understanding of God. You want to ask Him because He's got the answers. He's absolutely wise. He's absolutely all-powerful. You ask Him. So my challenge to you this morning, my friends, and there is a challenge, is how's your prayer life? I don't say that in a legalistic kind of way. I say that simply because this, of this. If it is the means of grace to us, if all we have to do is ask, and God is faithful to give, I'm just saying, how much are we asking? You know what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 18, verse 1? And I I looked at this. uh, I was talking about this with Petri this week. It's the uh, parable of the persistent widow who who comes to the judge. who's not a righteous judge. And she keeps asking. She keeps asking. She keeps asking. And there's no breakthrough coming. And the judge is not responding. And she keeps keeps asking. And eventually he relents. Eventually, even though he's an unrighteous judge, he does the right thing. And so it's a, a kind of a illustration that the Bible uses, the lesser to the greater. And it's saying basically, if an unrighteous judge is like that, how much more? Your Father in heaven, who's a righteous judge, how much will he not bring justice for you? Like the law of the lesser to the greater. But the point is, Jesus says to his disciples, and this is Jesus speaking, so this can't be legalistic. He says, always pray, don't faint, but always Pray. I was thinking about that. When the pressure's on in my life, uh, that image of fainting is a very good one because you kind of just want to lie in bed and give up. Isn't it? And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Don't faint. Don't give up. Always pray. Just come to me. Just come to me, and I will give you what you ask for. So why does he withhold wisdom then? If that's what he wants to do, why does he withhold wisdom? Well, I think this. All he wants from us is the acknowledgement that we need him. All he wants. He wants us to acknowledge that we need him, that we are not self-sufficient, that we are humble enough to come and say, Jesus, I need you more than anything in my life. See, this is good news for all of us. Why do I say that? Well, when I look around this congregation, there's some bright people in this congregation. Some dentists you have to study hard to be a dentist. There's some partners in multinational companies. You have to have some brains to do that. There are teachers. There physiotherapists. There are people that are counselors. That's, that's brilliant. People have done well. People have worked hard, got an education. That's one group of people. Another group of people, perhaps you, you might feel like, well, I'm not like that. I've just got a, I'm just Mr. Average. Well, it's, you know, there's good news for all of us because we're all in the same boat. Because what James is saying is, doesn't matter how clever you are. It doesn't matter how bright you are. doesn't mean how educated you are. You don't need to have any of that to get this kind of wisdom. Because this kind of wisdom comes directly from heaven by two people, people who are humble enough to ask and just say, God, I need you. And that wisdom comes. That is good news. For every single Christian. That's God's promise to you. So what I'm trying to say is that wisdom is not cleverness. (laughs) And can we ask God to give us revelation of that? Wisdom is not cleverness. It comes from heaven. It's a free gift. Just like salvation is a free gift to you. This kind of wisdom is a free gift to you. And God gives it lavishly. He gives it generously. And it's mediated through prayer as you ask Him. He gives it to you. I felt God give me this phrase. And it was a challenge to me personally. And it just, God said to me, will you get on your knees willingly? Or will trials force you to get on your knees and ask me? Challenge you. <laughs> Will you just get on your knees right now? I'm not a masochist. I don't want pain in my life. How many of you want pain in your life? Well, I don't, I, I don't want pain in my life. Well, I thought God just said, well, get on your knees and ask me. Challenge to all of us. Okay, my third point is this, and I've only got four this morning, so we're halfway through, all right? Third point, wisdom is given by God, given by God. See, the most encouraging thing that James would say is that this wisdom is given to all, and it's given by God. It's a gift to us, just like salvation. And secondly, he says, uh, uh, the way that God gives us, he says he, he gives generously. Generously. And again, I want to say, I want to encourage you when you read the Scripture to use a couple of translations because sometimes one translation doesn't do justice. Um, And sometimes when you read other translations, you get just a deeper meaning. It says, uh, God who gives generously in the NIV, without reproach, without finding fault, it says. And the Greek here is Apollos, A-P-O-L-O-S, and it's a fantastic, uh, brings a fantastic uh, different understanding because it says, it means God gives this kind of wisdom with simplicity. That's what it means. Generously, without finding fault with us, and He gives it simply. And I love this. This is the, the 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 scripture I really thought was so meaningful to me this week. Two Corinthians eleven verse three. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, and he says, "I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere." and pure devotion to Christ. That's one tra- translation. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Other translation, s- s- translations say this. A simplicity that is found in Jesus. Beautiful. Paul saying to the church, no, just as the serpent deceived Eve with cunning thoughts, I'm, I'm nervous that you two are going to get distracted like that away from a simple relationship with Jesus. And what does James do in the first 3, uh, in chapter 3? He goes on and he clarifies how God sees this wisdom. And he says, the wisdom from heaven, chapter 3, verse 17, wisdom from heaven is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy, it's full of good fruit, it's impartial, it's sincere. I think too much of the church is full of intellectualism. Too much of the church is people showing off fancy thinking and all this stuff and Jesus says no the wisdom that I give you is a simple wisdom from heaven and it comes in that kind of way it's unpretentious it's gentle and we've all had those eureka moments in our life haven't we oh yes I see oh why didn't I see that before it is so simple that's, the re- that's wisdom from heaven. It is so simple. You know wisdom from heaven? It's like having, per- you know, what, what's the phrase? Um, hindsight is twenty twenty vision. Isn't that right? When you just look back, you can see so clearly. Oh, it's obvious. What James is saying, that kind of wisdom from heaven, it's like 20, 20 vision going forward. And you can have it perfectly as you just ask God in prayer. And I love this. Second half of that verse says, God not only gives generously, not only gives that kind of wisdom to us simply, he also gives it without finding fault, without reproach. You know what that means? It means God doesn't insult you when you ask. He doesn't say, oh, geez, Martin, you are so stupid. Why are you asking for it? Didn't you see that already? Oh, come on. God's not like that. That's what it means. He doesn't insult you when you ask for wisdom. He doesn't reproach you. He doesn't find fault with you. Surely you understand that. Come on. <laughs> he's not like that. No, he's gentle. Accepts all our requests with joy. Even the simplest, simplest thing that we ask for, he responds with joy. You know, I think that's why many Christians don't go to other Christians for, for counseling, for help. Because they're afraid that they're going to get rebuked. They're afraid they're going to get found fault with. And they come with this thing that's been a sin with them for a long time. And it's been so hard for them. They say, I just want to share this with you. And they feel like they're going to get their finger wagged. But they don't come. They don't ask. You know what? God's not like that. He's gentle and kind. His mercy always triumphs over over, over judgment. Always, always, always. And I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with something in your life, don't begin to wear a mask. And hide behind it. That's how the Bible defines hypocrisy. It's like people who are hiding behind a mask. I guarantee you, the thing that you are struggling with, is many others in this congregation struggling with the same thing. Find grace for your life. Come to the cross. Find grace. And the objective word, the word that uh, James emphasizes in that little verse, is that it's given. The key word is it's given. It is given. <laughs> you don't earn it. You don't have to beg for it. It's given to you. And you know, really, this surfaces many of the ob- primary objections that people have to the Christian faith. You know what people ha- hate about, most about the Christian faith? is that it is a faith that is given. It's offensive to the world. People hate this about God, that He's so generous that He just gives stuff to us. He's just so generous that he gives us salvation in Christ and he doesn't ask us to do anything. He initiates that salvation. He says, I give you that salvation as a free gift. All you have to do is believe in faith, by faith in Jesus, I give you salvation. People hate that. They do. You know why? Because they want the kind of wisdom that comes by years and years of study and years and years of reading books. And years and years of showing people how clever you are, so that people can come to you and say, Well done, you such a Well done, you're such an intelligent person, we honour you. That's what people really want. And you see the problem is this kind of wisdom that God gives to anyone who will ask, when He gives it to you, you can't boast because it's not yours. And that's what people don't like. You need that kind of wisdom. I want to tell you, I believe that this church can experience revival when we all start operating in that kind of wisdom. God-given wisdom from heaven comes down to us, mediated by prayer. As we simply ask him, he answers. He's faithful, he's generous, he's kind in every way he will give us. All who ask. I trust you're finding this encouraging. Those who put their faith in Jesus, those who put their faith in Christ, We call to do all things without murmuring, without complaining, count it all joy when we fall into trials of all kinds. And when we do that, we're beginning to pass the test. And Jesus says, along the way, as you pass the test, don't murmur and complain. If you still lack wisdom, just ask me and I'll give it to you anyway. (laughs) That's the Christian life. This is the gospel. All we have to do is ask him. So how do we know when we're getting that kind of wisdom? My fourth point, and I'm closing with this. How do we know... That kind of wisdom. Well, I want to say there are a number of ways. Firstly, by a quiet assurance. Just a quiet assurance. And uh, this has happened a number of times in my life, not often, but I put it like this. You just know in your knower. You just know in your knower. There is this peace, this assurance, this knowledge that you are just doing the right thing. That is wisdom from heaven. That comes by by the Spirit as you pray. There's a peace and insurance that governs your heart. It's the umpire in your heart. That's wisdom from heaven. That's the first way you can get this wisdom from heaven, just by a quiet assurance. That's what you need to be looking for. Secondly, the Bible says, by sanctified common sense. Sanctified common sense. And this, for me, is a combination of friend, that intellectual wisdom, and a wisdom from God. You kind of, what do I mean by this? Well, you've thought through the issues. You've considered all the possibilities. We live in a real world, so you think through everything logically. You consider the alternatives. And in that process, you're trusting God by the Spirit to lead you. And often it means you've got to exercise your own judgment in the process. And unless there's an obvious check from God, you go ahead. That's what I call sanctified common sense. But there's not a negative witness of the Holy Spirit. Where you know something is obviously wrong, so you just walk forward, and God in His sovereignty and His, His sovereign hand in your life opens and closes the doors and blocks things off. That's sanctified common sense. That's a kind of wisdom from heaven as well. And thirdly, when God just makes the decision for you, that's the best, isn't it? (laughs) When God just makes the decision for you, I heard. I was trying to think of who it was now, the pioneer guy, what's his name? Gerald Coates once preached the message when I was at university, which I remember, and he said, God is often doing more behind your back than he does in front of your face. Isn't that beautiful? God's often doing more behind your back than he is in front of your face. And that is wisdom from heaven. It's just like he providentially works behind your back, and suddenly you're confronted with this, and it's like, there it is. There it is. It was a bit like uh, when Helen and I got married. I was um, 28, and uh, I'd been seeing a girl in my early 20s, and it didn't work out, and I didn't see anyone for a long time, and you know, there's the pressure when you get to your late 20s of, well, am I going to get married? And some of you still trusting God for for people to marry. I want to encourage you, don't give in, because God, he does it behind your back when you're not even looking for it. And we just met at a dinner party. Some people invited us. I wasn't looking for it. I don't think Helen was looking for it either. Within three weeks, we're engaged. Six months, we're married. We've been married for 18 years. Like that. God did it. That's it. I'm encouraging our boys, don't give your heart away. Don't give your heart away. Wait on God. Ask him. If you are fortunate enough to be 19 and God brings the person to your life, rejoice, 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 enjoy. Otherwise, be patient. Ask him, he will give. That's dazzling Christianity. That's 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 what I'm trying to say. Just wait until he brings the answer. You know, that's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says you don't have to worry about what, you, what, you, what you're going to say to people. He's saying when you walk by the Spirit, you don't even have to worry what you're going to say because in the moment, God is going to give you the words anyway. <laughs> that's what he's saying. He says, don't worry. It's not your wisdom. It's the Holy Spirit's wisdom in you. Just ask him. Man, this is exciting. This is dazzling Christianity. This, this is the Christian life as God always intended it. Not to live by law and rules, but to live by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, hearing from Him. So exciting. Uh, I'm aware, I am maybe overwhelming you now this this morning with my loud voice, but um, the promise to you is to ask God. And uh, there's a little phrase that perhaps might bring a complication for you, and we'll look at it in the next couple of weeks. I won't preach next week, but the week after, because James, he seems to bring a little bit of a condition, (laughs) unfortunately. He says... uh, He asks, must ask without finding fault, and it will be given to him because he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man will not receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable, and all he does. Well, why does James say that? Well, that's a message for another day. All I want to say to you this morning is I believe this with all my heart, that God promises this kind of wisdom to all of us. And as surely as he is the same God that ends a trial in his perfect time, making all things beautiful, he's not asking you to ask for something that he's not going to give you faith for. He's asking you to ask him, and as surely as you need wisdom, you will have the faith to ask and pray for that wisdom, and it will be given to you. I believe that with all my heart. So we'll look at that frames that, that James uh, talks about not being double-minded and what that means in the next couple of weeks. Ask God. Ask Him. Ask Him. For those of you that are, are um, still trusting God for work, ask Him. For those of you that are asking, trusting God for financial provision, ask Him. ask Him. Ask Him. Ask Him. Ask Him. In the place of prayer. And He will be faithful and He will answer. I felt God speak to me in the shower this morning as I was getting ready. And I felt God say to me, I need to bring something to you as a church, as a challenge to all of us. And as I've been preparing this message, God's been addressing worldliness in my own life and areas where I'm backslidden in my own life. So I don't say this in any way, pointing a finger at anyone. But I believe there's a call from God for us as a church away from backsliddenness, away from worldliness, into a passionate love affair with him. I believe that's the call of God to us. And I felt God give me four things, and I feel like this this is the way that backsliddenness is expressed in a local church, four ways. One, where the priority of meeting as a church is no longer a priority. Where meeting on a Sunday becomes just one of a number of options. So if I haven't got anything better to do, then I'll come to church. I I believe that is is. A sign of backsliddenness. Hebrews encourages us. It says, don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but always encourage each other. Always get together. I want to I challenge you. If you're in the habit of, of, of coming to Sunday meeting once a month and you've got this kind of deal with God, well, the other Sundays um, I'm with my family, so we'll go for a picnic or we'll do this or we'll do that. I'm not knocking any of those things. I'm just saying with the kingdom must become a priority for every single one of us if we are to become dazzling Christians that transform the world. And part of that is meeting together. Part of that is being encouraged by the word. And I loved what... what um, uh, my, my, yes, you. Renee, sorry, Renee. Renee. I always, that always happens to me. It's so frustrating. When I get under pressure, I can't remember someone's names and I feel all insulted. I'm sure they're feeling insulted. But Renee brought him a word at the end of our meeting on Wednesday night. We were just talking about life groups and she said this. She said, I can't even remember the scripture, but it was that we are to cheer each other up and encourage each other as believers. What was the scripture? Philemon 7. Philemon 7. And I want to... I want to I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to mutually encourage each other in our meeting together. You see, the thing for preachers is that that sometimes we can feel like we have to wave the stick. And I'm not waving a stick for anybody. I'm done with that. I'm not doing that anymore. I I believe my calling is this, to preach the gospel as best as I can, to study, to pray for you, to preach the gospel, to coordinate the leadership of this church, to see this church grow and flourish, raise up a leadership team, that is my calling. To lead worship, that's my calling. The priesthood of believers are called to encourage each other in the faith as well. So I'm not waving a stick. I'm just saying, why don't you encourage each other, that you are encouraging each other into meeting, meeting together? Yeah? Secondly, I felt like God said to me, challenge the people in terms of generosity. Because I believe that also is a sign of backsliddenness where financial generosity dries up. Now, this is a hard one, because now I'm, I'm going to, I've got to say this, but I believe it's true. I think there's some people who've not been generous for years and years and years. In fact, the minority of this church carries the majority by far. If you've stopped giving, it is a sign of backsliddeness in your life. I want to encourage you, we're going to break bread. You know what we like to do when we come to to the table? We like to um, pray all the scriptures and say things like, God exchanges his perfect righteousness for me at the cross. All my unrighteousness he takes and he forgives all my sin. All my sickness he takes upon himself and he gives me health. I, I, I believe all that is true. Absolutely true. You know what is also true? That at the cross, our stinginess dies. And his generosity is born in our lives. <laughs> it's true. Our stinginess, our living for ourselves and just for our families and not living for the community of faith, it dies at the cross. It dies. And all that we have is Jesus's anyway. I want to encourage you. Let your stinginess die this morning as we break bread. All right? I want, to, I, I want to encourage you with that. So, meeting together. Generosity. We, we have some plans for expansion this year. Thank you, Colin. Some of the guys had a brilliant idea of putting solar panels on the roof to generate money for the church. I think that's a brilliant idea so that we can have underfloor heating in the coffee shop and it looks like it's going to happen. That's very exciting. But you know what? We don't rely on the grid for money. We, Jesus is our provider. He's generous to his people. Amen. Come on, guys. We can't can get excited. You know, that's the other thing I felt. Like, because of pressure in the last couple of years, we, we, we've stopped being joyful and celebrating good things. Yeah? Come on, let's, I'm not trying to hype anyone, but I am trying to encourage you, and let's have a smile on our face. Let's be joyful as we talk about money instead of getting all, all kind of like introverted. I long for the days when we get back like it used to be in this church where we used to take up the tithes and offering and people would cheer that's a yes. Here's my opportunity to give. And now it's like we slide the baskets around. Everyone's a little bit embarrassed, and they kind of go, "Let me just put my five pounds in uh, payment for coffee." That's what it is. Generosity. Okay. If you've stopped giving, I want to encourage you to start giving again. I've never done this before. I think in eleven years I've talked this much about money, but anyway, I'm going to do it this morning. Okay. Thirdly, a lack of generosity in serving. A sign of backsliddenness. Oh, someone else can do it. Too hard for me. I'm not part of a home group, so why should I help host on Sunday? Couldn't be bothered. Sign of backsliddenness. Okay? And then fourthly, I do believe, that's not a sign of backsliddenness, but I do believe that there are many of you that are saying, God, what on heaven do I do now? (laughs) It's just like a situation in your life where you're just saying, God, I do not know. Please help me. Please. You are desperate for wisdom. Where should I live? Who should I marry? What should I do? What do I do about this? Well, we want to pray for you this morning because there's wisdom from heaven for you. Amen? You still like me or now you don't like me anymore. That's my problem. I want to say to you that little sentence right there that shows you my problem. I want to be liked. And I've stopped saying some things in this church because I want to be liked. I don't want to be disliked anymore. Well, I can't do that anymore. I'd rather fear God and be true to what he says. And even if some of the things that I've said this morning have made you feel angry and say, well, how dare you say that? Well, I want to say to you that even in the midst of that, you know what I'm saying is true. You do. We should be meeting together. We should be generous. It shouldn't be, the pastor shouldn't have to say these things, really, when we're living for Jesus. Amen.